we, we, we are looking at the whole issue of reconciliation and our common humanity in Christ. Reconciliation and our common humanity in Christ. Like I've just referred to Jacob's journey in Genesis 28, and which I felt during worship, him having to rediscover God for himself inside of his own fears in broken relationship with his brother and stepping into what I call a holy rebellion, to step out of the world, to take what used to be called loose and redefine it and call it Bethel, finding new language to define our journey in God. Because how many of us know that this world is not going to find language for you? You need to see God and find new language in God to define your own journey. And so he says, this is Bethel, this is the house of God. He says, this is the gate of heaven. It's a place, it's a portal for heaven to step in, into Devon. We want Anthem to be a portal for heaven. An entrance point for God to come and find a home inside of the brokenness of Devon, of South Africa. And this issue of reconciliation and our common humanity in Christ is not going to be resolved through ideological definitions and, and, and whatever political definitions out there that exist or, you know, theories and academic theories we have to come back to the definitions of the kingdom of God. And as we step into this conversation this morning about reconciliation and our common humanity in Christ, I want to frame it uh, by talking a little bit about kingdom humanity. And, and uh, we're just going to, I'm going to open your imagination, imaginations a little bit and, and, and uh, let's, let's imagine, let's dream in God, let's see what God is dreaming about, and then it's come back to find a pathway to getting there. Because we can't just dream, we have to find a pathway. And so I want to start this by framing it inside of a conversation of kingdom humanity. And this is a vision conversation. And the question that we begin to see, if you can put that next slide, is what do you see? The, the God asked the prophet one day, what do you see, Jeremiah? In the midst of a broken nation, in the midst of things that were happening, he asked the prophet, what do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah described for God. This was a different experience, prophetic experience. Oftentimes, we go to God to, find, to ask him, God, what do you see? And in this case, God asked the prophet, what do you see? There are a few times when God challenges us, you know, can these dry bones leave, prophet? What do you see, prophet? And Jeremiah has to answer back to God, and God evaluates his answer and he says, you have seen correctly because in your correct seeing, you are going to be in a state of partnership with me, with God. And if God asks me, what do you see, Robert? I say to him, I see kingdom humanity. I see kingdom humanity. Remember, vision is a statement of sight. We can find many ways to define vision, but really vision is a statement of sight. It's a statement, it's a description of what we're seeing in our future with God. And so when God asked me the question, and of course, we have different people and different gifts, and we all have our vantage points based on our anointings and callings and what God has placed upon us as a burden, the Messiah, the burden of the Lord upon our own hearts. When God asked me the question, what do you see, Robert? I said, I see kingdom humanity. What is that? That is the adornment of church with the humanity of Christ. I see a season when church is being adorned with the humanity of Christ. And the scripture, if we go back to the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 verse 2, John 
who writes the book of Revelation says, Then I, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And our key word there is the word adorned. Of course, we know in the biblical themes, the New Jerusalem, the city is us. It's the church, right? Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. He, he has defined us as his city. And, and if you like, a civilization of the kingdom of God. We are here to improve the human condition. Anthem exists in Devon to improve the human condition inside of the brokenness of Devon. And so we are God's city. We are God's Jerusalem. We are God's bride. We are adorned. That's what, you know, the, the, the apostle John is saying. Adorned, the other word adorned is the word cosmeo, which means to put in proper order. It means orderly arrangement. Ladies will understand this word because ladies... Before you left the house this morning, you stood in front of the mirror and you decorated yourselves. I know you're wearing masks now and we can't see maybe much of that, but you adorned yourself. You made yourself look beautiful. So that is the idea um, inside of what we call kingdom humanity is the adornment of church. Church cannot look worldly. Church has to look like Christ has to be adorned. So beyond just the fact that we get saved, in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, we get saved and then we, get, we put on the new humanity of Christ that is made to be like God. So that's what I see. That's what I see. That's what I see. And if we define further what kingdom humanity is all about, uh, kingdom humanity, simply put, is humanity according to the kingdom of God. If you can put the next slide there. Humanity according to the kingdom of God. That's what kingdom humanity is. Now, you and I get born in this world. And around the age of 18, you get saved. And, you know, the ideal is that you should get saved earlier. But if you're like me, you probably got saved. I got saved around probably 22. You've seen enough of the world, the brokenness. You yourself are broken. Now, you get saved, you get into the church. But really, you're carrying the brokenness, the, the, the tainted garment of this world. And you come into the church and you worship God, you try to be good, but really, you know, you still have to, beyond your salvation, then begin the process of what the Bible calls putting on this new garment, the humanity of Christ, this new humanity, this new anthropos, as Paul outlines to the Ephesians. So really, kingdom humanity is humanity according to the, to the kingdom of God. Kingdom humanity is about us reimagining what it looks like to be human in Christ. Because we get into the church again, and our imagination is still very much tainted by what we have seen out there. And we have to reimagine, God, what does it look like to be a man in you? What does it look like to be a woman in you? To be a husband, to be a father, to be, to be, to be, to be a wife, to be a mother. And that's what kingdom humanity is all about. And again, the key word is the word arrangement of human life. And as we saw in the previous scripture, in Revelation 21, verse 2, the bride was adorned, the bride was arranged, the bride was decorated. And I love this word arrangement. It's a word that means to put in proper order, to adorn, to decorate. It means orderly arrangement. If we can put the next slide there. Here's the thing about kingdom humanity. It's the understanding that we are not saved into arbitrariness. How many of us know that? We are not saved into emptiness, into an undefined space. 
We are saved into a construct of life. And that construct is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is now your context of existence, of human existence. Your context of human existence is not South Africa. It's not blackness. It's not whiteness. It's not your suburb. It's the kingdom of God. You are saved into and you are obligated to that kingdom of God. So kingdom humanity defines not only, therefore it defines not only the image of God in us, but our human form in him. We've got to see, you know, when Philippians 2 says when Christ came, um, you know, it describes that we have to have the same mind of Christ and all of those things. And it says he, he, he came to the earth as a servant to die for us. And then it says, it says he was found in human likeness, in human form. And I love that. And that's for me, is beyond just the fact that he was a Jew living in the Middle East. He, there was a human construct. If you looked at Jesus, he said, if you see me, you have seen the Father. If you look at me and look at the way I live, the way I operate, the way I think, you are seeing the very construct of the Father. And that's the thing about kingdom of humanity. is like we look at Jesus. We are not just looking at the image of God, but we are looking at our human form in him. And that's very, very important. The missional focus areas of kingdom humanity if we can put that up, the missional focus areas, and I'm just framing this conversation, then we're going to step into issues of reconciliation just now. Um, there are five missional focus areas of kingdom humanity. The first conversation, or the, you know, or the first theme has to do with moving from common faith to common humanity. The problem in the church, I've, when I look at the church, and I've traveled around, I've seen the church, is that we believe in the same Jesus, but we don't believe in the same life. And that's our problem. There's dissonance when it comes to life. And that speaks into issues of racism, speaks into, you know, different issues of life. So I believe that God is calling us beyond just the common faith in Jesus to move into a common humanity in Jesus. And that's where we're going to be dancing this morning, really. Uh, in these five missional focus areas, that's where we are speaking into. That's the room we are playing within. Well, the next four have to do with the kingdom being the framework of my human existence. Uh, when you look at you know, social media, look at people's behavior, people are more obligated to their ethnicity than they are to the kingdom. People are you know, more obligated to their race than they are to the kingdom. People are more obligated to their nationality than they are to the kingdom. And I'm talk, when I say people, I'm talking about believers. We really should be more obligated to the kingdom than we are to our ethnicity. You know, um, um, in Acts chapter 1, these disciples have been following Jesus. He's resurrected and, and they ask the question, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, you guys don't get it still, till now. You're still operating within a, a framework of nationalism. I'm sending you out to the nations. And you are nationalistic in your understanding. And he rebukes them. And then he talks to them about, you will receive the Holy Spirit and all of those things. Our challenge, when I look at South Africa and the church in South Africa, we have more of a white, black, Indian color church than we do a kingdom church. And that is our fundamental challenge, to rediscover the kingdom as a framework of my human existence. I have to be more kingdom than I am black. I have to be more kingdom than I am Zulu. 
And yes, I am those things. And yes, I can be all things to all men, like Paul says. But I'm really, my, I premise my existence on the kingdom of God. And that's the next theme there, the second theme. The third theme is really looking at church as the arrangement of human life in Christ. Church as the arrangement of human life in Christ. And church is not just a gathering. Church is arrangements. Church is the arrangement of, of, of family, of marriage, of, of, of different constructs of life that are represented here. And so we have to really begin to think about when we're building under, we're not just building a bunch of people who appeared on Sunday morning. We're building constructs that those people represent. There are families here. There are businesses represented here. There are all sorts of things represented here. And so that's what church is. And really, that's how the world looks at the church. When, when the world does not look at the church as Sunday morning experience, when you're running a business and you are doing a not-so-great job and maybe there's you know, some stuff that is not so kingdom, the world says, look at the church. They have looked at your business and they say, look at the church. When you can't get your family right and parenting right, they say, look at the church. They don't say, you know, they, because they are not here on Sunday morning. So our challenge is that we frame our pastoral building within the context of Sunday morning when actually we need to start look at the constructs that are represented in this room this morning. The third theme, the, you know, the one, two, three, four. The fourth theme is really looking at redefining how we express Christ, how we witness about Jesus. You know, through our devotion, which is spirituality, through our human life. You know, I need to be a holy man. I need to be a pure man. I need to live righteously and through citizenship. And citizenship, you know, Paul speaks a lot about citizenship in Ephesians and other places in Philippians. Citizenship is your public life. It's the, it's the quality of that public life. It's interesting. When I listen to SAFM when I'm driving my son to school and, and you listen to people. And when it comes to public matters and public issues... Again, we are more South African and more black and white than we are kingdom. In the, in, on comes to issues of public affairs, and that's our challenge. And so we need to relook at that. And then the, the, the fifth theme is looking at humans as spatial beings. How many of us know that you are here this morning, you came from a set of conditions? Spatial conditions. Maybe some wealthy, some poor, some this and that, spatial. You know, God made Adam to exist in space. And the scripture speaks to us in the context of spaces in which we live. It's not very helpful to be a great believer on Sunday morning, but be building evil spaces. Whether these are spaces of business, of family. You know, again, when the, church, when the world looks at church, it looks at the spaces in which we exist. And so, therefore... Kingdom humanity says this, says that we have to really be zooming in on the themes of our common humanity in Christ, if we can put that next slide. Um, and there are four themes here, um, or, or components, you know, principles that bind us together. The first is common origins. We're all saved in Jesus, right? Remember, your origin in being here is not your birth date when, you know, dad and mom brought you forth into the world. That's not why you are here. You are here because you got saved. That's why you are here. Common origins, 
Common life, which is again what we're going to be talking about today. Common mission is we share the same gospel and common destiny in Christ. I think common life is where church is struggling. I think that's where we are struggling. Common life. The wrestling with the idea that we together collectively are the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. And all of that leads us to the whole principle of coherent diversity. That's what God envisions in us is that he wants to see, um, in the next slide, he wants to see us as a people who reflect what I call coherent diversity. Racial diversity anchored in common values in Christ. We are diverse in how we look, but we share the same values in Christ Jesus. We, say the, we share the same Jesus. In Colossians 1.17, all things hold together in him. Things that can't work out there in the world can hold in Christ Jesus. That word, mean, that word means they can cohere. They work together. And these are some of the principles um, that we think of when we are thinking about kingdom humanity. Now, let's step into this whole journey of reconciliation. And I'd, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And if we can put up that scripture, here we go. 11, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, the journey to reconciliation. After having articulated all of those beautiful themes and principles, we've got to walk the journey. Let's read this. I will read this for us this morning. Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember, remember that at a time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, not just my peace, our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who, are, who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the, in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Beautiful scripture. I'm going to read that again. And as I read that again, I want us to think not as what God, not, to think of this not as what God has done historically more than 2,000 years ago. Remember, the word of God is, is the logos of God. It is the thoughts of God. And so in reading this scripture, I want us to see the mind of God for anthem. Not what God has done to Jews and Gentiles historically, but what God wants to do to anthem now. Yeah? We are reading, let, let's step into the, the pulsations of his thoughts. 
what excites him right now when he looks at Anthem, when he looks at Livingstone's agency. Let's think about it. Therefore, remember that formally, you who are Gentiles, formally, it means a journey to reconciliation begins with a recognition of the history of the people. Formally, the things in times past, I think another translation says, that the conversation about reconciliation does not begin this Sunday morning. It begins in the histories of the people groups that find themselves in the space. Remember the things that have happened formally. Remember where you come from. Remember that word remember. You know, exercise your memory. Be educated about where you come from. About where things come from. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves. Do you realize the, the tension that the scripture is now pointing out for us? There is the one group calling another group here names. Remember that you who are Gentiles by birth and called by those who call themselves. There is... Um, an unequal power dynamic taking place here. There are those who call themselves and, and then who have the power and the agency to call others. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. The emphasis is physical characteristics. Remember, you know, if you were male those days, you know, at some stage you had to they had to chop your foreskin. And, and the emphasis about that is physical characteristics. There is a, a calling of each other based on physical characteristics, which is the circumcision, right? That done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at the time, you were separate. So the history here is that you are separate from Christ, excluded. These are the words that Paul is using. Separate, excluded, foreigners. So he's talking about the lack of equity of a certain people group within a space. Their inability to call a particular environment home. Remember that you are separate, you are excluded, and you are foreigners. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. There is a, a structural Shift. There's a, a structural movement here. You've been brought near. And then it says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace. So it introduces Christ not as my personal savior, but as our peace. A framework within which we can exist peacefully. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility? We're going to describe that in a moment. And his purpose, it says, was to create in himself it wasn't to complain about the conditions. A lot of people are complaining in South Africa these days, right? His purpose was to create in himself. We, God wants and God is looking for creators of new realities. For pioneers, people who can create new realities and who can step out of the brokenness of this nation. Not people who complain about what's happening. To create in himself one new man or one new humanity, more correctly, should read one new humanity. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. In verse 18, to give both of them access, both of them access, 
you know, that word access is a political word in those days. It's like, imagine Esther, remember Esther approaching the king and was given the right to approach. That's what that word means. That someone who did not have the right to approach has now been granted. And as we read it again, imagine in our minds the kind of environments God wants us to build. Whether we're at Anthem or we're building a business organization, this is what you want to see. Do people in my space have the right to approach? They, do they have the right of access? In verse 18. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Build. Again, create and build. Create in verse 16 and build in verse 20. God wants creators. God wants builders. Not people who complain. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There is no other cornerstone. There is no ideology able to glue us together other than Jesus. A cornerstone back in those days was a stone that held the building together. It was a stone that held the building together. So built on that chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. You see, the language is one of integration. Joined together. And then it talks about the Spirit of God resting upon them. Let's ask the question then, why reconciliation? Why reconciliation? Well, we need to be reconciled, I think fundamentally for three reasons. We need to be reconciled because the gospel envisions a church of reconciled people groups. The gospel doesn't only want to save Robert. The gospel wants to reconcile Robert and Richard. That's a complete gospel. It envisions a church of reconciled people groups. That's the first thing we can think about reconciliation. The second thing is why we need reconciliation is that Church is called to be a community and not a Sunday morning gathering. There is no need to talk about reconciliation if we don't aspire to be a community. Because why do you need reconciliation simply for Sunday morning? So because we are called to be a community where this ecclesia of God, we've got to reconcile. That that reason why we need to reconcile is because we are called to be the witness of the Lord in society. And I believe part of the mistake that we've made in church is we've built disciples for the church and not for the world. We have to disciple people for the world and not for the church. And so, in other words, sometimes great church members are not so much great citizens out there. We've got to, in that context, there is nothing like a homogeneous church because you don't exist in a homogeneous world. You exist in a diverse world. You go to the workplace every day and meet diverse people. And that's what we should be equipping you for. We're not equipping you for Anthem, not for Living Stones Agency. We're equipping you for that school next door. We're equipping you for the workplace, for the business, for your interface with other people groups. And so that you and I can be a witness out there in society. Those are the three reasons why we need reconciliation. Number one, because the gospel dreams about it. Number two, because church is called to be a community. Number three, because 
we are a witness in a broken society. We are a witness in a broken society. And to further illustrate that, if we put that slide about the cross and looking at the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, we see that the cross really seeks to achieve three things. One is forgiveness of sins. Robert has to be forgiven. But the cross doesn't end there. The cross facilitates inclusion of formerly excluded people groups. How many of us know that? That in the tabernacle of Moses, there was only the Jews and there was only the Levites and the Aaronic family functioning within that. The rest of the people had no agency to determine their well-being. They waited for Aaron and hoped that Aaron did a great job in there. And what the cross does is that it breaks that system it opens up the curtain and it says, come in on board. And it gives those who formerly did not have agency the power to now be able to lift up their hands and worship God. Those are the kind of churches we want to be building, the kind of families and business organizations that we want to be building. So there's a political statement really behind the cross. Because it's a mechanism of inclusion. The third thing the cross does, it reconciles. Because once you have brought everybody into their house, how many of us know that you have potential problems? Yeah. Once everybody's in the house, it's, it's easier to maintain homogeneous friendships, homogeneous environments. But once you say, well, look, let's bring everybody on board, then you're going to have other problems, misunderstanding, cultural offense, and all of those things. And because of that, you need to start grapple, grappling with the whole issue of reconciliation. Grappling with the whole issue of reconciliation. So now if you go back to Ephesians 2, in verses 11 to 22, we see that this scripture does not only outline God's plan of redemption for Gentiles in relation to Israel, it also outlines his pattern, his thinking system, his his. His, the framework of his mind about how people groups across the world need to be reconciled. So in other words, we don't read the scripture as history between, in context, Jews and Ephesus. We have to now apply it to South Africa and say black and white, right? We have to apply it in different... Man, you, you'll be amazed as you travel the world. The world is broken. And the brokenness is really the same. It includes issues of you know, racism and all of, those, all, all, all of these things. In a South African context, I will generally apply it as black and white. So if Paul was writing to us, he would be writing into that context and presenting the mind of God for us. The scripture in Ephesians 2 acknowledges the existence of race groups. It shows us God is not colorblind and that he acknowledges racial identities within environments. He acknowledges Jews and just as he acknowledges Gentiles equally. Of course, in context of that letter, Gentiles are the Ephesians. So when Paul says, you Gentiles were excluded, he's really saying, you Ephesians were excluded. So there's a recognition there of racial groups and racial identities. And there's a big conversation in our nation right now. The implication of that is that the journey to reconciliation begins by taking stock and realizing who is in the room and who is in the house. Where do they come from? What's their story? What did it take for them to be here this morning? What did they you know, have to process for them to be here? Or, no, or, 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 or not even just in this Sunday gathering, but to be part of this church. 
It's amazing when, 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 uh, when we receive like, new members in church, I like to sit with people and ask them about their history, about their family upbringing. And often time, you all the time, almost guaranteed you're going to find some brokenness there. As I can't pastor you if I don't know you. And I don't know you if I don't know your history. And so I, I love, I personally do those things, but I love doing that. And like, yeah, tell me about your family. Tell me. You will almost guaranteed always find some pain. So the journey to reconciliation begins by taking stock and acknowledging people groups in the room. It requires us to be detailed like that. Because God sees people groups and God knows their stories. God heard the people of Israel crying in Egypt. He sees conditions. He sees who is here and where do they come from. What's their story like? We've got to do the same thing. This scripture in Ephesians 2 is not addressing believers as individuals, but it's addressing us as people groups. And that's important. This scripture is addressing us as people groups. So Paul says Jews, plural, Gentiles, plural, right? So we cannot read that scripture through the lens of Western individualism. We've got to acknowledge that God is looking at people groups within the church. Church, in other words, is a place of interface of diverse people groups. That's what God is saying. Of diverse cultures. These things have to be even pastorally acknowledged. The kind of people, the people groups that are in the house, and where do they come from, and you know, what's their story, what's their brokenness. Every people group has some form of brokenness. Every people group has some form of brokenness. So, and so that scripture is speaking to us as people groups, as groups of communities inside of God's house, inside of God's church. And that is important to acknowledge. The scripture addresses the Jews in relation to Gentiles. We've said so. And of course, in context, the Gentiles are the Ephesians. Now, if you start about Ephesus, Ephesus was an affluent city that had, an, you know, that had intellectual institutions and cultural institutions and a thriving commercial center. So the implication when Paul is addressing issues of reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, not like uh, Ephesians need the Jews economically. Ephesians were very much an affluent community. So the mission of reconciliation, in other words, must not be confused with economic empowerment. It must not be confused with economic empowerment. In other words, we cannot buy reconciliation and we cannot sell reconciliation. Do you know how we buy reconciliation? By signing our checks before we offer our hearts. How do we sell it? By presenting our needs before we present our hearts. And we see these things play out in South Africa. What God really requires from us is our hearts first. You've got to lay your heart on the table and then say, well, if I've got a checkbook, I can sign some check. If I've got some needs, I can, you know, say what those needs are. But the first thing that God requires from you and I is our hearts. Otherwise, we we, we, we sell or buy reconciliation really using economic means. The scripture acknowledges hostility between people groups. So in that verse in Ephesians 2.14, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
That word barrier or the middle wall, depending on the version you're reading from, means a partition that separates people groups. So there's a partition between, historically, between me and Richard. We've got to acknowledge it. It's a partition of history. Our histories are different. Our histories are clashing. We've got to acknowledge it. That to, to come to a place of friendship requires an acknowledgement of that history, of that middle wall of partition. So it talks about the barrier, and then it talks about the hostility. And that word hostility means a fence. It means a hedge of thorns around a vineyard. A hedge of thorns around a vineyard. It means to block up. And um, the implication inside of that is that each time groups and cultural groups interact and interface, there's always offense. And the offense is not based on personal issues. The offense is based on ways of life. The way I do life, you know, offends you, and the way you do life offends me if we come from different cultural backgrounds. And in the illustration and picture, there we go, is, is that we have this hostility. So each time I come and, you know, want to touch your life, and if you don't look like me, my hands get hurt, yeah? And if you do the same, your hands get hurt too because the ways of life are clashing. This, there's a hedge. There, is a, there are these boom gates of offense between cultures. These are set in the spirit realm, not here. And the offense is structural. It's not personal. It requires, therefore, structural reconciliation. And we're going to, you know, illustrate what that looks like. But imagine in your mind, in the spirit, between blacks, Indians, coloreds, white, all these boom gates, all these, you know, fancies of thorns, so that these people groups are not able to interact because of our history, because of how we do life. Some cultures are communal. Some cultures are individualistic. If you come from an individualistic culture and looking at a guy coming from a communal culture, it offends you. If you come from a communal culture and looking at a guy from an individualistic culture, behave, it offends you. And unless you can have an intentional journey to process those things, there can't can't be reconciliation. Because the cultures offend one another. That's just how this thing goes. So what is the the thing, this barrier that God is talking about? He's talking about the law. The barrier is the law. And, and, And not just the law of Moses. He's talking about the the. That word law talks about distribution and dispensation of life. The way, say, blacks dispense life is very different from how whites dispense life. So there's a first hostility that he identifies, the law, the dispensation mechanism, how we operate. And then he says the commandments. That word commandments is the word traditions, cultural precepts that guide our behavior. And then it talks about regulations, the dogma. Regulations are the opinions and mental estimations, the, the stereotypes that when I look at you, I am looking at the image within my mind. And if you don't fit within that image, you already offend me. And that's what Christ wants to deal with. He wants to clean up my own image in my mind so I can see you correctly. 
Like the Bible says, we don't, we, know, we don't know, you know, we don't see men after the flesh, but in Christ, right? We don't see the stereotypes in our minds. We've got to see Christ, the Christ, the Christos. Opinions and mental estimations. That word means to, to think, to have propositions and preconceived ideas about people's behavior. Worldviews, stereotypes, ideologies. It, that word, you know, regulations means all of those things. The law, the commandments, and the regulations is what offends between cultures. So, like I said, if you think about communal cultures versus individualistic cultures, for instance, um, the question we can ask ourselves is, when does communal life bring value and when does it become a burden? When does individualism become nasty? When does it become necessary for me to affirm my personhood? And, and, and these things are not the Sunday morning things, these things need us to sit around the table and process them. So those people groups and sitting around and, and processing the, the histories and that have informed how I see the world, the images in my mind. When I look at Jax, I'm not seeing Jax, I'm seeing an image in my mind. And, and so God has to deal with that image and purify him and clean me up and then, and then I can see her correctly as a woman of God. And that's basically what that process looks like. And so I have the metaphor of the handshake. If we can put that up, the metaphor of the handshake. The metaphor of the handshake. You can't see the words there, but you can see two hands, right? And in this metaphor of the handshake, we have a soft versus a firm handshake. And we can begin to ask questions about what is the meaning of respect or assertiveness. Depending on where we come from. In certain cultures, you have to be strong and firm. But in the culture I grew up in, the handshake has to be soft. And that's a sign of respect. A firm handshake is aggression. So what is the meaning of respect or assertiveness? How do we define people? In Christ's value cannot be from tradition. It, is, it has to be determined by the currency of the heart. To understand people in Christ, we must spend time with them. Or see if we can read them in the moment when they shake hands with us. We're going to misread them. We need to spend time with them. Hear their story. That's why God sends this apostle, Peter, to the house of Cornelius. And Peter has racism in his heart. He's the apostle of God. He's been working with Jesus for three and a half years. But he still has racism in his heart. And when he enters the household of Cornelius and hears the story of Cornelius, that's what we need. Storytelling. And he hears a story of God in Cornelius' house. And he says, now I know God is not a respecter of persons. Now I know. This is the same guy that stood with Jesus in Matthew 28. And who was commissioned in person. Go ye into all the nations and make disciples of all nations. Now I know in Acts chapter 10 only. The guy is racist. He's an apostle, but he's racist. Yeah. Apostles can be racist too. 
to understand people in Christ, we must spend time with them. Or if we're going to see them only in moments of events, we're going to misread them. So we have to understand cultures in order to be all things to all men. I'm fascinated by cultures. And, uh, you know, I've been to Solomon Islands and Cook Islands and I ask people about their history. And some of those guys look like me. I say, yeah, I'm sure you guys came from Africa. There's a story. You know, cultures fascinate me. We must understand cultures in order to be all things to all men. Understand culture, be fluent in the culture, but don't be defined by it. And I think storytelling, storytelling becomes important. The interface of narratives and how those get cleaned up by Christ. Sitting around that table becomes important in the journey of reconciliation. Absolutely, absolutely important. The next slide, still on the whole issue of the handshake, um, really looks at how every culture has idols. And some idols are more obvious than others. In my culture, the idols are ancestors, you know. My forefathers worshipped ancestors. They took ancestors as messiahs, as mediators between man and God. And that links to everything, including my life, my economic well-being, my future. You know, uh, anything that happens, I go back and consult. In a white culture, it's your forefathers traveled around the world, you know, taking over territories and establishing themselves. Wealth and power is what you've got to confront. The tendency to step into a, a space and define and call it by a name. I went to Cook Islands. They call it Cook Islands. And it's named after a guy called James Cook. It's like, well, who was living here before James Cook arrived here? What gives him the right to arrive here and call it by like, James Cook? We're Rhodesia next door. The tendency is to step into the space and, and define as though nobody existed before is what we want to confront in a, in a white Western culture. Some things need to be discarded. Some things need to be changed. Some things need to be understood. Some, some things about cultures, we just have to understand them. Some things need to be adopted as best practice in Christ. Actually, some aspects of culture are really more kingdom. And in all cultures, in all people groups, there are aspects of the kingdom of God. We've got to see those and adopt them inside um, of our lives. So transformation, if we have to reconcile, we need to transform. And if we have to transform, we need to begin to dismantle um, um, we need to dismantle certain things in our minds, like I've said. We, when we look at people, we see images in our minds. You know, Jesus says, if you look at someone and he talks about the light inside of you and how dark that light can be, yeah? And we want, we want, we want Jesus to clean that light on the inside of us. The light of stereotypes, the light of worldviews. God has to clean that up. And it takes, you know, Paul, Peter had to be in in Antioch, the apostle, the racist apostle, I'm picking on him this morning. He was in Antioch and was eating with the Gentiles until the Jews arrived and he withdraws himself. And Paul sees that. It's amazing what I think that the gospel has to be demonstrated in social circles. 
I think our behavior in social circles reflects our heart. And we need to think and ponder very deeply about how do I tend to behave in social circles. And Paul sees this and he confronts him and he writes about it. He writes a book about it. And, and uh, it's, 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 it's an amazing story. So reconciliation requires transformation and transformation requires that we dismantle certain things. So it says in Ephesians 2, Christ destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, and he abolished the law with his commandments and regulations. He destroyed, that word destroyed means to loosen, to unbind, to dissolve, and to set free. We need to be, we need to be set free from our cultural backgrounds. Not just from sins, but from our cultural backgrounds. And he abolished, it means to render useless and ineffective we can no longer be defined by, I'm a Zulu man, but I can't be defined by that. But I can be that. I'm fluent in the culture, but the culture does not define me. It doesn't define me in arguments. It doesn't define me in, in, in public affairs. That culture does not define me. And let's put up the slide about dismantling. Uh, to demolish, we need to demolish in order to rebuild. And as we bring this to a close, we need to demolish in order to rebuild. The first picture is Richard Mangavin coming to demolish your house. Demolishing. But then there's hope because in the second picture, he comes to rebuild. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 to 5? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, security structures. People, you know, it's, it's amazing when you listen to SFM radio. You know, people argue, they're arguing for their security structures. Culture and narratives that make us feel safe. That's what God wants to dismantle. Casting down arguments, narratives, reasoning, and every high thing. Anything elevated above God, I can't elevate my Zuluness above Christ. I can't elevate my history above Christ. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought, mental dispositions, that is, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that's how we have to build. So Paul says, pull down narratives that make you feel safe. The only narrative that must make us feel safe is the narrative of Christ. Right? The narrative of Christ. The narrative of Christ. And I think I will end this with comparing Paul and Peter. These are two apostles. I've already highlighted how Peter had a problem of racism. When you look at Paul, Paul understood that salvation involved deconstructing his ethnic cultural definitions. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, he's deconstructing the fact that he's a Jew, the Hebrew of Hebrews and all of those things, right? He says, I have to uh, consider that rubbish. I have to put it aside. And that word rubbish is the word that means dog poo. He says, I cast away my, my ethnic construct in relation to Christ. It's not about disrespecting cultures. It's talking about in relation to Christ. He says, in order to gain Christ, I've got to devalue this. Unless we consciously devalue our ethnic construct, we are not going to powerfully step into the kingdom of God. 
Paul understood how to engage people groups according to their cultural context. To the Jew, I become like a Jew, he said. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. Paul challenged his own people on cultural prejudice. Acts 15. When they required that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. You know what they were really saying? You need to look like us in order to be saved. And we do this in, in many different ways. Unless you look like me, speak like me, behave like me, dress like me, you are not quite saved. And that's what they were really saying. And Paul confronted that. Paul understood that the gospel had to be expressed during social interactions too. So in Galatians 2, the story I've just referred to, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth, I confronted Peter, he says, in Galatians chapter 2. That was a story in Antioch. So he sees during social interactions, during lunches and, and, and dinners, how people are behaving. There's a lot that you can read about people during those social interactions. Peter, on the other side, received the great commission from Jesus in person. And yet he went to minister to the family of Cornelius with prejudice and racism in his heart. And in Acts 10, he says, I now realize that God does not show favor. I now realize. That's like the, the, the apostle gets delivered. We all need our deliverance moments. You know, one day I was driving a car and we had this, you know, in the road, things happen. People fight in the, in the road. And there was this white guy, older than me, across and we had a, an issue. And just as I was speaking up, the Spirit of God said to me, he's an elderly man. What do you see? Do you see a white man or do you see an elderly man? I confronted my heart because I saw a white man in the context. And when God said that, I understood in my culture, you, need, you respect the elders. And so I shut my mouth. I drove off. Not because he won an argument. Because the Spirit of God spoke to me. We all need our deliverance moments. In Antioch, Peter practiced exclusion. Exclusion. When we're in social spaces, be aware of exclusion. So in our church, you know, we have a vision to build a, di a church of di racial diversity. And because of that, we've taken a practical decision to use English. And so often we'd receive uh, blacks and, and I would <laughs> watch them as they step into the environment. Able to speak English, but from time to time wanting to recline. And so people would be standing in a circle and guys start talking. In, this doesn't really happen now, but back in the days especially. Guys start speaking in, in Zulu. When you do that with an Indian guy next to you, you're excluding them. You're actually excluding them. And you can't do that comfortably. I said, guys, this is not proper. You are practicing exclusion. You are well capable. If you can't speak English, I understand. But if you can, you know, switch back to English so that the Indian brother next to you feels welcome in the conversation. There's many ways we exclude people. In the examples we use in all sorts of things, sports and all sorts of things. We need to be conscious of these things if we're building for God.
our behavior and social circles really does reflect our hearts. We all need our deliverance moments in the journey towards reconciliation. Let's stand and pray.